I want to invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to John chapter 10. We've been teaching for a number of weeks on the uh, life of God. There are four different words used in the New Testament, the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, for the word that's translated the word life. Three of them have to do with uh, behavior and natural existence, but one word is always used specifically when it's talking about God, uh, life in relation to God, and it's the word zoe, the Greek word zoe, Z-O-E. John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He's talking about the work of the devil. Anything that steals is the devil. Anything that kills is of the devil. Anything that destroys is of the devil. Now, truthfully, I mean, without going very far into any kind of theological discussion, if this verse of Scripture is true, then, then very much a great deal of church doctrine is wrong. If this verse of Scripture is true, that the devil is behind everything that steals, kills, and destroys, then all the church doctrine that's been developed for thousands of years about God bringing sickness and disease and tragedy and difficulties and adversities unto people is wrong. James said very specifically that God can tempt no man with evil. Now, God does tempt you. For example, the Bible talks about the the test that was uh, presented before Abraham. He tested Abraham and said, um, uh, offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. He didn't tell him to kill him, but he said, offer him up as a sacrifice. And everything that the Bible instructs you to do, paying your tithes is a test. Walking in love is a test. All of these are temptations because you and I know that we have an opportunity, we have a choice to make over whether or not we're going to do what the Bible says to do or we're going to do what we want to do, what our flesh wants to do. And each of those situations is a test. It's a temptation. But the Bible says God tempts no man with evil. It doesn't say he doesn't put you to the test. There are things that the Lord has spoken to me to do just to see if I do it. And even where the temptation where Abraham was concerned... At the end of that, where God stopped him before he brought his son any harm, God said, now I know that Abraham will not withhold his only son from me, therefore I can't withhold mine from him. Talking about Jesus. So there are tests and there are temptations, there are uh, situations that arise in life that God brings about to see if we're going to obey his word, to see if we're going to trust him, to see if we're going to put him first. But he never tests us with evil. He never tests us with anything. He never brings anything into our life that can steal, kill, and destroy because that's the devil's job description. If that's true, then so much of the church doctrine that that the world knows of, the modern-day church knows of today, is wrong. That means sickness can't be from God because it steals, kills, and destroys, both physically and financially. That means when a child dies, that can't be God at work. That means you losing your job wasn't God. That means somebody getting in some kind of terrible accident wasn't God. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, people at the hospital got saved. Well, that's good that the people got saved, but God wasn't behind the accident. God can work in any situation, but that doesn't mean he causes them. That's why the Bible says in everything give thanks. It doesn't say for everything give thanks. It says in everything give thanks. Why? Because God's greater than anything you find yourself in the middle of. That doesn't mean he caused it. The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. In my thinking, this is Christianity 101. But I don't think a lot of Christians took that class. And as a result, if you don't know who's bringing trouble into your life, you don't know what to pray. How do you pray for God to heal you if you think he might have been the one to bring sickness into your body? You can't pray in faith. You can't pray with any kind of confidence, so you can't get any results. So what's the point in praying? If you don't know God brought some tragedy or whether or not God was behind some tragedy that you find yourself in the middle of, how do you pray for deliverance? How do you pray for help? How do you pray for comfort? The Bible says the prayer that receives from God is the prayer of faith that doesn't waver. Well, you can't help but waver if you don't know who's behind what's what's going on in your life, the experience that's going on in your life. 
the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now here's the contrast. Jesus said, but I am come that you might have life, Zoe, and that you might have it more abundantly. That you might have it more abundantly. Now, James uh, or John 5, chapter 5, verse 26 tells us a little bit more about that life. And we've talked about some of these things. I don't want to go to a lot of different scriptures that we've already seen. Uh, but I do want to kind of lay a foundation for the one thought, the one thing that the Lord put on my heart this morning. John 5, 26, Jesus said, as the Father has life in himself. Here's this word Zoe again. As the Father has life in himself, so is he given unto the Son to have life in himself. Now, Jesus is talking about a quality of life. He's talking about a kind of life. He says, as the Father has life in himself, that's the kind of life that Jesus had. That's the kind of life that he said he came to bring us. Well, what kind of life is that? Well, I guess we'll have to go back to the beginning. What kind of life does God have? Since God predated everything, he's not talking about existence, and he's not talking about behavior. He's talking about a quality or a characteristic of life that's different than anything you can have here on the earth. Otherwise, Jesus would have said, as the Father has life in himself, everybody has that. But he didn't. He says, I've got the same kind of life that the Father had. Why? Because he was one with the Father. He was born of the Spirit of God in human form, but in spirit nature. Same kind of life that Adam had when God breathed into him the breath of life. Now, that word's the Hebrew, or that was written in Hebrew, so it doesn't have the same corresponding term. But you could understand that it would have to be the same. When he breathed, when God breathed his life into Adam, that would be the same kind of life that Jesus said that he had and that the Father had in him. As the Father has life in himself, so also is he given unto the Son to have life in himself. He's talking about a quality of life. He's talking about a different kind of life than you can have here just as a human being. Or as a human being apart from God, I should say. And Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Turn back with me to to, uh, Luke chapter 16. I came this morning with one thought in mind, one thing that the the Lord witnessed to my heart earlier this week. Not exactly sure where I'm going to go with it. So we'll find out together. Luke chapter 16, let's start reading in verse 19. Jesus is describing a situation and the condition of life after death and how things worked when he was here on the earth. Now, things have changed a little bit since then, and I'll tell you about that as we go. But so many times people, I guess uh, from the beginning of time, man has wondered what happens when this life is over, when this existence is over. Jesus described it very specifically as to the conditions and what happened when he was here on the earth. He said in verse 19, Luke chapter 16, verse 19, he said, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Now, I need to stop long enough to say, uh, to point out to you that he said there was a certain rich man. Some people will say, and some Bible scholars will say, well, this is just a parable. A parable is something that stands for or represents something else. This can't be a parable if Jesus used the word certain. This is the same word that's used when it says there was a certain woman with an issue of blood over in Mark chapter 5. Well, do we understand that to be a parable or a real woman? Over and over again, this word is used, certain, when it's talking about an event that took place in Jesus' life. Well, we understand those to be real-life events. Jesus is saying this is a real-life event. There was a certain rich man, real guy, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar, real man, named Lazarus, who was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed from the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, please notice neither one of those two men, either the rich man or Lazarus, stop existing. The beggar died, meaning his body was laid in the ground in some way or another. The Bible doesn't tell us about his burial. But we understand that that was the case. The rich man had a funeral. He, was, he died and was buried. Notice the beggar, the real man, was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. In other words, he didn't stop existing. His body expired, but he didn't stop existing. And so often we look at death, physical death, as the end of something. Well, it's really not. Both men continued to exist. 
The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he, he, he continues to exist, doesn't he? And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now, the rich man, the fact that Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus in, in, in the terms that he does, tells us that both of these are children of Abraham. Both of these are Jews, descendants of Abraham. And as a result, both of them would have known about the law of Moses. The rich man doesn't have to ask, point over to somewhere and say, hey, who's that guy over there? And find out it's Abraham. He knows who he is. He knows who Lazarus is. He's going to request Abraham to send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue before he's tormented in that flame. He doesn't have to ask who anybody is. Sometimes people say, well, will we know each other in heaven? Well, if we know each other there, here, certainly you will. Now, we see a location change with these people. Both of them die, their bodies die, and they wind up in different locations. Now, folks, the thing about eternal life is the same as in real estate. Location, location, location. (laughs) One of them is in Abraham's bosom, the other is in hell. One of them is in a place of comfort, the other is in a place of torment. Now, why isn't the rich man in the place of comfort? He's a natural descendant of Abraham. Why isn't he in the place of comfort? Because he was too busy here on the earth to pay attention to the law of Moses. He was too busy here on the earth with the things that distracted him, whatever they may be. Maybe they were parties. Maybe they were social events. Maybe they were high society things. I don't know. You would think that as a rich man, he would certainly have been eligible for those things. Whatever it was, he made something more important to him than the thing that gets you into Abraham's bosom. Which is a faith in and looking for the Messiah, which was the whole reason for the law. To show you your need for a Savior. Apparently he didn't think he needed one. And lived his life in such a way that he missed out on the comfort of eternal life. So he asks Abraham... Verse 24, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So hell is about flames. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received good things, thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. Now he's not saying if you have it easy here on the earth, you're going to have to spend eternity in hell. If you have it tough here on the earth, then that's your way into heaven. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying things were different on the earth. I think he's probably saying, you didn't pay too much attention to Lazarus when you were here. You were in a position to show mercy unto him, and you didn't. Which would have been keeping the law of Moses, which might have helped. But he's not saying this is punishment, this is penalty, this is, this is because Lazarus had a tough time here on the earth, now he's got a better time now, and because you had it easy, now you've got a tougher time. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, just like you were in different stations in, on the earth, now you're in different stations in the afterlife. Now he's comforted and thou art tormented. Notice he said in verse 26, and beside all this, and beside all this, in other words, even if I wanted to, beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren that he may test it. Still talking about Lazarus that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now the most important thing to him is the afterlife. Wasn't the case on the earth, was it? But now all of a sudden, it's the most important thing to him. He realizes he can't change his station, but he wants to help others change theirs. 
lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, they've got the same chance you had. He said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Abraham, or he's saying, rich man, if Lazarus had risen from the dead and talked to you, you wouldn't have paid attention. And neither were your brothers. Why? Because you didn't care about the things of God that were presented to you. Now, here's the thought that I had, and here's something the Lord ministered to my heart, witnessed my heart earlier this week, and that is a great gulf fixed. That verse of Scripture came to me one morning just as I woke up. Between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. I'm here to talk to you this morning about the great gulf. Well, what are you going to say, Pastor Mike? I have no clue. (laughs) Actually, what I'm here to talk to you about is abundant life. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. Notice the difference. Notice the great gulf that existed between Abraham's bosom and hell even in those days. Now, things are different now. The Bible says after Jesus was raised from the dead, he, he went to hell, literally paid the price that you would have paid without a Savior as your substitute. That had to be hell. Couldn't have been Abraham's bosom. The Bible says Jesus was the firstborn or the first begotten from the dead. He was, it couldn't have been first begotten from Abraham's bosom. Lazarus had been raised from Abraham's bosom. Others in the Old Testament had been raised from Abraham's bosom, temporarily at least. If Jesus was the first begotten or first born from the dead, that has to be from hell. Because nobody had ever been born again from hell. From the place of eternal damnation, separation from God. Nobody had ever been raised from there, but Jesus was. Jesus was raised from the dead, and the Bible says the first thing that Jesus did was he led captivity captive. Led captivity captive. What does it mean, led captivity captive? It means he took those in Abraham's bosom. Did you notice how Abraham said, we can't travel? We can't go from from where we are to where you are any more than you can go from where you are to where we are. So even though it was a place of comfort, it was a place of captivity. They were held captive. Now, why were they captive? We think of captivity as an evil thing or a bad thing and that kind of stuff. Why was it considered to be captivity? Because they couldn't get to God. They're in a place of comfort, but they still couldn't get to God. They couldn't, still couldn't enjoy the fellowship of heaven in the presence of Almighty God. Why? Because nobody had paid the price for spiritual death, sin and death. They had to wait for Jesus on that. But the Bible tells us that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he preached to the saints in prison. Preached to the saints in prison. What could that be other than Abraham's bosom? The Old Testament saints were those that were looking for the Messiah by keeping the law of Moses. That's these people. Abraham and all those that followed after. They preached, he preached, Jesus preached to the saints in prison and then led captivity captive. I imagine the sermon went something like this. I'm the Messiah that you guys have been looking for. Does anybody want to go with me? I don't think he had to preach a long time. I don't think he had to convince anybody of anything. It was simply a matter of him saying, this is it. And as a matter of fact, on the mountain of transfiguration, you remember that Moses and Elijah appeared before Jesus? Peter, James, and John are there. Peter spoke up and said, oh, this is great. Let's build tents. God said, shut up. This is my son. Listen to him. Well, why did Moses and Elijah appear to him just before? And the Bible says Jesus spoke to them about going to Jerusalem and being crucified and raised from the dead. Why in the world did he speak to Moses and Elijah before he went to Jerusalem to be crucified? Well, Amos says, Amos chapter 3 says, that God does nothing except that he shows his prophets first. Where did Moses and Elijah come from? Abraham's bosom. That's where the Old Testament saints were kept. Where did they go back to? Abraham's bosom. What did they say? Boys, times are almost up. The Messiah is on the way. They prepared the way even... In the afterlife, in Abraham's bosom, just like they tried to do here on the earth, speaking to men. So when Jesus gets there, everybody's ready. They've got their bags packed, so to speak. I don't guess there are any bags there, but you know what I'm trying to say. They were ready to go. I'm wondering, since we see that Abraham was able to look over into hell where uh, the rich man was, and the rich man was able to see over into Abraham's bosom where Abraham was, I'm wondering if they've watched the punishment that Jesus has paid 
the price for or taken upon himself to pay the price for sin and death. That's possible. Don't know for sure, but it's possible. So when Jesus is raised from the dead, maybe they saw that too. When the life of God comes back in Jesus and he throws back every power, every force of hell and the eternal punishment for sin and death, maybe they witnessed that. Wouldn't that have been a show? The Bible says Jesus spoiled principalities and powers. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Christ spoiled principalities and powers and made an open show of them. That may have been that, that point in time where they witnessed. So Jesus leads captivity captive. Now the Bible says, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He didn't say to be absent with the body is to go back to Abraham's bosom. So now there is no Abraham's bosom, or maybe we should say it this way, Jesus moved Abraham's bosom to heaven. Back then, at that point in time, these are two lower compartments of hell. And still, Abraham says, there is a great gulf fixed. So what I want you to see, the, th- the point that I want to bring out first and foremost, is that notice the distinction, notice the division, notice the separation, notice the difference between Abraham's bosom, a compartment of hell, even though it was a place of comfort, and what we know of as hell, hell then is hell now, even before Jesus paid the price for sin and death. Imagine what the difference is between heaven and hell. Now, folks, the the qualification for heaven and hell is very simply eternal life. It's the only issue. People talk about the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is one and only one thing, and that's rejecting Jesus. It's the only sin that the world will be judged by. What do you say about Jesus? You remember what Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16? He said, who do men say that I am? Peter answered and said, well, some say you're Elijah or or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Some even say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Jesus said, well, who do you say I am? That's the real question. Who do you say I am? That's the question of all eternity. Who do you say I am? Other people have their opinions. Who do you say I am? Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. In other words, Peter, here's the first spiritual revelation you've ever had. That's pretty good for a spiritually dead man. Don't laugh at him. He's spiritually dead. Yet he heard from heaven on that one. For flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And he said, and upon this rock, not Peter, for goodness sakes. Peter's not the rock. The rock is the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the unchanging foundation of the church. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, the key to heaven and hell is your position on Jesus. Eternal life. Turn with me over to John chapter 3. Let me show you what this abundant life is. Jesus talked about, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. What is an abundant life supposed to look like? John chapter 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That just means he was a teacher in the synagogue, one of the leaders in the synagogue. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, the word teacher is literally master. He's talking about a ruler like me. I'm a ruler in the synagogue because I have a position of authority and a position of of, uh, uh, leadership. But we realize that you are a master, not just a teacher, not somebody that just knows stuff, but that you are a master in the things of God. How do we know that? Because somebody can't do the miracles that you do except God be with it. So he's equating being a master with God be with him, being with him. Whatever I tried to say, I had that wrong. He equates being a master with God being with him. Why? Because of the miracles. We know that God's with you because of the miracles. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. If unsaved men that just know the law, just knew the law of Moses, understood that miracles were the sign of God being with somebody, what do you think the church is intended to look like today? What's changed? 
how is it that the modern day church, at least the American church, the Western church, how is it that the, the modern day church accepts the idea that, well, we're just supposed to know that God doesn't always hear and answer prayer, and God sometimes makes you sick, and God sometimes brings tragedy into your life, but you're still supposed to be faithful. How is that, where was that substitution made? See, in Jesus' day, people knew God was with them because of the miracles. But we're supposed to believe nowadays that the sign of God being with us is what? A doctorate degree? Our denominational history? What is the substitute? So much of the church says that miracles have gone away. The, the day of miracles is past. Folks, it never was a day of miracles. There is always and will, has always been and will always be a God of miracles. Has God passed? Well, then miracles can't pass. God is a God of miracles. They knew that in the Old Testament. These guys are spiritually dead. This guy's a spiritually dead man, and he knows that. I guess we're smarter than that now, though. We know that you're a master and that God is with you because of the miracles that you do. Notice what Jesus answered. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know what the modern church has done with that? Modern church has said, miracles aren't important, being born again is. See, even Jesus changed the subject. It's not about miracles. It's not about the power of God. It's about being born again. We just want to get people born again. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's saying the key to miracles is being born again. The key to miracles is being born again because without being born again, without having the life of God in you, which happens at the new birth, without being born of the Spirit of God, God can't be with you. So what's he saying? He's saying abundant life is the key to miracles. He's saying the abundant life is the equivalent of miracles. He's saying that the life, John 10, 10, the life that I've come to give you, the life that you're supposed to have more abundantly is the life of miracles. Because apart from the life of God, there is no miracles. And I'll go even further and just say, apart from miracles, there is no life of God. See, one of those is easy to agree with. Can't do miracles without the life of God. The other side's kind of tough. If you have the life of God, there will be miracles. That's a little harder to accept. Then we kind of feel like we're on the spot on that. Nicodemus doesn't understand the whole idea, the whole concept of being born again. But notice he doesn't say, wait a minute, we're not talking about being born again. We're talking about miracles. He understands that Jesus is trying to qualify or trying to answer his question. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's thinking physically. And, of course, that doesn't work physically. Jesus answered and said, verily I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, natural birth, and of the Spirit, spiritual birth or eternal life, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, what is he saying? He's saying the same thing he said in verse 3. The kingdom of God is about miracles. What you recognize in me that shows you and proves to you that God is with me is the miracles. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the dominion of miracles. The realm of miracles. And he's saying, except you're born of water, natural birth, and of the Spirit, you can't enter into that kingdom where miracles exist. And rule. So abundant life has to be miracles. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It tells us what happens at the new birth. Your spirit is recreated or born again. Second Corinthians 5.21. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. It's 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. What all things? Spiritual things. Your spirit becomes new. In other words, you receive this life, this abundant life, by making Jesus the Lord of your life. Marvel not, verse 7, that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth, and thou hearest the, thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell where it comes from and whether it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. In other words, you can't tell the leading of the Spirit. You can't tell where the life of the Spirit comes from by looking at natural things. It's a spiritual, unseen experience. 
Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and says, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? He could say, read Ezekiel 36. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know. He's saying, I'm talking about stuff I know about. Why? Because the same life that the Father has is the life that he's given to me. I've got the same eternal life. I've got the same quality of life. I've got the same Zoe life that God has himself. And what could life be? How could you qualify or identify the life of God or the the characteristic of God's kind of life without calling it the life of God? The God kind of life is the only kind of description or characteristic you can attach to it. It's God's life. Nobody had it apart from him. He gave it to man. Man lost it. And Jesus came to give it back. It is the God kind of life. The Zoe life is the God kind of life. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying it's the key to the kingdom of heaven. And it results in miracles. We speak that we do know and testify that which we've seen. You receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? In other words, he's saying, look, this is the foundation. This is the basics. This is the ABCs. If you don't get this, how are you going to get anything else? And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. He's saying, I know these things because I started off in heaven with God, and I've come down to the earth to reveal them. Nobody else has done that or could do that. As Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That, verse 15, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Zoe. Verse 16 is the one everybody knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Zoe. Notice he says it twice. He said it comes down to one thing, and that's believing in me. One thing that comes down to believing in me, that makes the difference between heaven and hell. That makes the difference between life and death. The difference between abundant life and your natural existence separated from God, the default position of the earth, is believing in me. Now, what is that abundant life supposed to look like? Folks, I want you to turn with me over to Second Corinthians chapter 5. Let me point out just a couple of scriptures. We won't go long. I know people have... Mother's Day plans and things like that. And we don't want to keep anybody late. But I do want you to see a couple of things. Second Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I'll read down through verse 4. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved. Now Paul's talking about the, the, the dissolving or the the putting off of the natural man he's talking about the 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 death of the the flesh the expiration of the body he's saying if your body dies here's what we know we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved we have a building of god a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens he's talking about the difference between your spirit the inside man the real you and the outside man the body He's giving the same example. He's talking about the same thing that we just read over in Luke chapter 16, where both the rich man and Lazarus died, yet both of them continued to exist. Their bodies expired. Their bodies were buried. Their bodies began to decay. And their spirits departed their bodies, and their spirits continued to exist. He's saying the same thing. He says, we know that if our natural body, our human body, mortal body dies, we still have a building of God. You've got a more sure house than the flesh. Well, what is that more sure house? That more sure house is your spirit, the real you. You remember how Paul said that uh, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. All Bible scholars agree that he's talking about himself. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. That's one of the most fascinating scriptures in all the Bible to me. How could Paul not tell if he was in the body or out of the body? Now, it, tells, it says a couple of things to me right off the bat. Number one, it tells me he was by himself when this experience occurred. Because if I'd been there praying with Paul or whatever he was doing when it happened, I would have known whether or not he left his body. Anybody there would have known. If his body departs and his body disappears, we're going to recognize that. It's going to be readily apparent, right? Yet Paul said, whether in the body or out of the body, I can't tell. How could he not tell? Because your spirit isn't affected whether it's in the body or out of the body. 
Spirit's the same. Your spirit isn't aware of the presence of the body when it's focused on the things of God. He didn't lose any of his sensations. He didn't lose any of his mental capacity or abilities, functions. His soul is still operating. His spirit is still intact. Therefore, outside of physical stimuli, how would he know whether he's in the body or out of the body? Somebody called our flesh the earth suit. Just like you go into space, you got to have a space suit to be able to exist and, and function in space, in the lack of atmosphere, the absence of atmosphere. Somebody calls your body your earth suit. I think that's a good example. Your spirit's unaware. Your flesh is very aware. Because of the outside, external, natural stimuli that it receives. That's why the body was ruled by the five physical senses. But you do away with anything that interacts with those five physical senses, and how does your spirit know it has a body? Paul's not caught up into the presence of God. He's caught up into the third heaven. There is no natural, physical, earthly stimuli or sensation. How would he know? You can tell I've put in a lot of time thinking about some of this stuff. I'm not sure I've got any more answers than I did when I started. But I've got a lot of things that are interesting. He said, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. He said, and I heard things that I cannot say. Literally, King James is pretty weak on that. Literally, what he's saying is, I don't have any way to describe it. I heard somebody on the radio the other day. Well, it was Rush Limbaugh. He was talking about uh, the, the he got a new cochlear implant and stuff like that. He said, describing to people what it sounds like is almost impossible because he doesn't have anything to relate it to. And I thought about Paul. Things that Paul saw and things that Paul heard, he didn't have anything to relate it to. How does he describe the things that he saw and heard? He's not saying God won't let me tell you. He's saying there's no way I can tell you, no way I can describe it to you. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with heaven, uh, not a house not made with hands, excuse me, eternal in the heavens. So the spirit man's eternal. The physical body is not. The spirit man is. For in this we groan. In other words, he's saying, here is our frustration. Here is our agony. In this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. In other words, Paul is saying, now get this. This may not be your position. But Paul has grown and experienced the things of God to such a degree that he's saying, I want to leave. I'm ready to go. Paul said right into the Philippians, he said, I'm in a straight betwixt two. That means here's my dilemma. I have a desire, the real me, the, the spirit man, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. Yet to abide in the flesh, meaning in the physical body, is better for you. So I don't know what I'm going to do. I want to go. The man on the inside wants to go. He's saying the same thing here to the Corinthians. He said, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed on with the spirit man. He said, I want to get out of this body so bad I can't stand it. Now contrast that with most Christians' attitudes. Most Christians are trying to stay in the body as long as they can. Most Christians are trying to avoid the things to come. Let's put it off just as long as possible. And Paul says, I, the quicker I get out of here, the better off I'll be. For in this we do groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so, that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. In other words, he's saying, now, I'm not talking about just being a spirit being alone. I'm talking about the plan of God being finished. Verse 4, for we that are in this tabernacle, this earthly body, do groan being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but that we would be clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. What's he saying? He's saying, I can't wait for the rapture. I can't wait for Jesus to come back for the church because then we receive our redeemed bodies. He's already written to the Corinthians about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus is going to come back and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together and meet him in the clouds. We will be clothed upon. Our bodies will be changed once and for all, instantly, eternally. Now we want, from that point forward, we'll have no sin-tainted, sin-experienced flesh. 
But now notice the way he says it in verse 4. He's written these things to these people. He knows that's what they know he's talking about. He doesn't have to go into a lot of detail because he wrote to them about it in the first letter. What we know of his first letter. Actually, it was the second letter, but it's called 1 Corinthians. So he knows. He knows they know what he's referring to. He's explained it to them before. He says, I cannot wait. That's what I'm really looking forward to. I don't want to just go to heaven. I want the plan of God to be finished so that everybody in the body of Christ enters into the joy of God, enters into their eternal heavenly home. And notice how he says it, that death may be swallowed up of life. Can I ask you a question? Why don't you put your thinking caps on on this one? Here's the question. What changes at the rapture? What's the difference in you and the redeemed body that you're going to have when Jesus comes back for the church and the body you've got now or the condition that you're in now? What changes? Is that when you get born again? Is that when the life of God really works? You know what changes? In you, nothing. The change is timing. There is not one ounce of the life of God that will be greater then than it is now. It's just a matter of timing. Do you know, know the only thing that the life of God that we've received from our hearts by being born again through the work of the Holy Ghost, do you know the only thing that keeps that from redeeming your body now? Timing. Because God said, here's how it's going to work. Man will be born again by accepting Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Old things will pass away. Spiritual death, things of spiritual death will pass away. And all things will become new. Man will become new from his spirit. At that point, we'll leave him on the earth to occupy till Jesus returns. To spread the good news of Jesus so that other people get born again. Other people come into the family of God. And then after a period of time, that unknown period of time, nobody knows except the Father, not even Jesus. And it's interesting that the Bible says that if Jesus knew, he'd tell us. That guy can't keep a secret for nothing. (laughs) Now, that just shows how close he is to you. He doesn't have any secrets from you. So he doesn't know the hour. He doesn't know the day. Only the Father knows that. But when that hour and that day comes... And God looks over at Jesus at his right hand, seated at his right hand, and says, now go get them. Time to get, uh, get the family here. Go get them. At that moment, the timing of God is fulfilled, and the life of God, which you already live, which you already have, which you already possess, swallows up every aspect of spiritual death. And your body is changed instantly. How do we know that? Turn with me over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Let's start reading in verse 8. Here's the problem with the abundant life. You got people trying to talk you out of it. The work of the church is to preach the good news of the availability of abundant life through the work of Jesus. But here's what the church does instead. It's nothing new. It happened in Paul's day. Verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. In other words, he's saying, don't let anybody teach you otherwise. Other than what, Paul? Teach us other than what? Keep us out of what belongs to us in what way? What are you talking about? Verse 9, for in him, Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Let's stop and think about that for a minute. What does it mean that in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily? That means Jesus, who has a body. Remember when he appeared to the disciples after his resurrection? He said, handle me. A spirit hath not flesh and bone. It didn't say flesh and blood. His blood's been poured out. But he said, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone like I have. So Jesus has a flesh and bone body. He's the only one in heaven at the present time that has a flesh and bone body. Everybody else is spirit. Everybody else has a physical body that died or was left here on the earth, and their spirits were caught up into heaven. But Jesus, 
at the right hand of God is different. He has a flesh and bone body, and that flesh and bone body carries the same marks that he got, that he received when he was on the cross. He still got holes in his wrists and holes in his ankles or feet. He still got a puncture mark in his hide. If he ever unclothed himself enough for you to see, it would still be there. He has a flesh and bone body. So in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Let me ask you this. Is there anything, 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 anything that we know of in Scripture that Jesus doesn't have or doesn't know except the hour of his return? Is there anything else that the Bible says God has, God knows, God does that Jesus doesn't? No, in fact, the Bible says that everything else about God has been delivered unto him. Everything. For in him, in Jesus, dwells all... Everybody say all. All the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Fullness of the Godhead, that means Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that means Jesus has been has received back when he got to heaven and, and offered himself as a sacrifice for mankind. That means Jesus got back all the heavenly power and glory that he laid aside to come to the earth to begin with. Plus, the Bible says that God gave him a name which is above every name that was greater than the name that he had before he came to the earth. There's nothing that the Father withholds from him, nothing power-wise, plan-wise, anything other than the hour of his return. That's reserved uh, exclusively for the Father, according to the Scripture. But everything else is in the hands of Jesus. The Holy Spirit, who is the power of God at work, is at his disposal completely. He has the fullness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in his flesh and bone body in heaven right now. Notice the next verse. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. The word complete is the same word for fullness in the previous verse. Other translations translate it this way. And you're filled up to the full in him. So wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He's talking about abundant life. He's talking about a quality of life. He's talking about a characteristic of life that is the God kind of life. There's no other way to describe it or define it. He's saying that you can have that God kind of life in an abundance. What does an abundant God kind of life look like? Well, we've already seen that that includes miracles. It includes signs and wonders and so forth. Jesus said, except a man be born again, except he receive the life of God, you can't enter into that kingdom where those things operate and rule. Now the Bible says, don't let anybody talk you out of this abundant life. Unfortunately, we could interpret that scripture today Translate that scripture today by saying, don't listen to 95% of what the church tells you. Why? Because in Jesus dwells all the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Power, plan, and purpose. And you're complete. You're filled up to the full in him. You're filled up to the full in him. Turn with me over to, real quickly, turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Uh, I just want to pick out a couple of scriptures here. Notice in verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Um, I love the King James Bible because it's a transliteration. It's the closest word-for-word translation that there is. But there's something about the King James English that unless you stop and take it apart and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what did that say? There's just so much of it we miss. The word reconciled here is the word to exchange mutually. In other words, there was an exchange. And notice it says the exchange that it's talking about is a relationship with God. You had no relationship with God because you were his enemy. You were children of the devil. We all were children of the devil before we made Jesus the Lord of our lives. It's not, it's not a matter of being a good person or a bad person or whatever. That has nothing to do with it. You can be a good person and still be spiritually dead. You can do bad things and still be spiritually alive. 
It has nothing to do with behavior. The life of God has nothing to do with behavior. Now, the life of God focused on and believed on and acted on should change your behavior. But you can't look at somebody's behavior and say whether or not they're born again. But we were enemies because we were children of the devil. Our nature was absent the life of God. And that's all spiritual death is. It's separation from God. It's the absence of the life of God. It doesn't mean somebody's a bad person. If you say somebody's going to hell, they would interpret that as being, well, you think I'm a bad person, and so I'm going to be eternally punished. No, it has nothing to do with whether or not you're a good person or a bad person. You may do a lot of good things. You may be a morally good person. But if you're absent the life of God, you're still going to hell because that's it's all about location, location, location. There's only two options. Heaven belongs to those who have made Jesus the Lord of their lives, period. See, the world gets caught up in behavior. The world's arguing about gay marriage. The world's arguing about adultery. The world's arguing about behavior. It's not about behavior. Folks, Paul wrote to the church and said, you uh, folks that are in adultery, quit being in adultery. Well, how can you be saved and be in an adultery? Be an adulterer or an adulteress. Because people do wrong things even though they've got the life of God in them. He said, those that lie, quit lying. Well, if we've got the life of God, what are they doing lying? Because they're still living according to the flesh. It has nothing to do with behavior. He's talking about relationship. And he says, when we were enemies, we were, rela- we were brought into relationship. That's what reconciled means. We were brought back into relationship with God through the death of his son. Jesus dying was about relationship. Jesus dying was about relationship. It was about bringing mankind back into relationship with him. And that's what he's talking about. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled, brought back into a relationship with God by the death of his son. Period. That's a done deal. That's a fact. Now, here's the important part. Much more. You know what he's saying? He's saying much more is that same great gulf fixed. As true as it is that we were brought back into relationship with God through the death of Jesus, much more. Now that we're in relationship with God, shall we be saved by his life, by the life of God, the Zoe life of God. Now the word saved is the word sozo. It means to rescue, to deliver, to make safe, to make sound, to heal. Because we were brought back into relationship with God, here's what that abundant life looks like. It looks like being rescued from anything you need to be rescued from. It means it looks like being delivered from whatever you need to be delivered from. It means being protected or made safe and made sound from anything you need to be safe from. It means to be healed from any sickness that comes against you. That's what that abundant life looks like. It looks like somebody that walks around without any effect of the world on them. It doesn't mean we won't be attacked, but it means that attack can't stand. You're going to be attacked from time to time. But don't worry, because the life of God will deliver you each time. <clears throat> Verse 17, for if by one man's offense, talking about Adam, <clears throat> remember Adam started off with the life of God, lost it when he obeyed Satan instead. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Notice the word that he uses, reigned. He's talking about a kingdom. He's talking about a dominion. Death had dominion by Adam's action. Much more. Now, the phrase much more is really interesting. If you're, if you want something fun, look up all the much mores in the Bible. Jesus talked about a lot of much mores. Paul talked about a lot of, a lot of much mores. Much more doesn't mean, well, in the same way, here's how this works. Much more means they are so far removed, they shouldn't even be compared. As true as it is, as real as it is, that Adam's sin caused death to reign. Death to have dominion over mankind. It shouldn't even be compared because this is much more true. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign. How are they going to reign? In life, through the life of God. In life doesn't mean in this earthly existence. Now, it applies there, but that's not the word that's used. It's not talking about through a human existence. It's talking about shall reign in life, in the life of God by one Jesus Christ. In other words, the key to reigning is the abundant life. The key to tapping into that abundant life is to realize what you have. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians, or Colossians, again, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, he said, don't let anybody talk you out of this. Don't let anybody spoil you. 
through vain philosophy or for, through philosophies or traditions of men, through vain deceit. Don't let anybody deceive you on this. Don't let anybody talk you out of this. The abundant life is everything. That's why Jesus said all things are possible to him that believes. That's why Jesus said all, uh, the, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. Think about Jesus saying that. Jesus is doing miracles that nobody else did. Jesus is raising the dead. Jesus is healing the uncurable diseases of the day. He is taking care of anything and everything that comes. Nobody's situation is too tough. He never turns anybody away that comes to him for healing or for help. He has to adjust their believing in some cases so that he can help them. But he never turns anybody away. How does the church get the idea then that God sometimes says no? Jesus never said no. Jesus turned some people around and said, well, you're going to have to believe this. You're going to have to operate like this. But he never said no. Where does the church get the idea that God sometimes says no? Jesus said, whatever you ask the Father, according to the word, if my word abides in you and you, if, if my word, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done. Where did the church get the idea that God says no? Well, Pastor Mike, are you saying that God will answer anything? Anything that's prayed according to his word? Yeah. Well, I just don't know if my situation applies. Then find out what the word says. It's pretty simple. That's the abundant life. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 63? He said, the words that I speak unto you, they're spirit and they are life. Zoe. Here's the thing about this abundant life. It's all based on what God said. It's all based on what God said. There's a great gulf fixed between abundant life and natural human life. An even greater gulf that was fixed between Abraham's bosom and hell. The difference between life and death, the difference between eternal life, the life of God and spiritual death, is the same distance between heaven and hell. You know what I think is going to be one of the greatest surprises? It's when Jesus does come back from the church, for the church, and we realize our bodies are changed instantly in the moment of time, and, and we realize, we, the men on the inside, the real us, the eternal part of us, realize once and for all how close we always were to the things of God. We think it's such a big jump. You know how close we are? The thickness of your skin. That's why John wrote to the church. And said, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Now, I know the modern day church doesn't preach this much. But the Bible talks about God in an absolute manner. It says the power of God is absolute. The willingness of God to help you is absolute. The readiness of God's power to provide for you is absolute. Healing is absolute. Provision is absolute. The Bible talks about God as an already an established, the things of God as an already established fact. I know the church doesn't preach that much, but don't let anybody talk you out of abundant life. Greater is he that's in you. Who is in you other than the Holy Spirit? And how can the Holy Spirit be in you other than receiving the life of God? It all comes back to the life of God. It's a life of faith. It's a life of confidence. It's a life of trust. It's a life of direction. It's an abundant life that results in miracles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the life of God that dwells within us because we've made Jesus the Lord of our lives. Thank you, Father, for eternal life. That because of the work of Jesus, not through anything that we've done on our own, but through the work of Jesus, we don't have to go to hell. We don't have to be eternally punished for our own wrongdoing. But, Father, we know that not everyone has that confidence and has that knowledge. So we pray for anyone in this room, under the sound of my voice, that doesn't know Jesus as the Lord and Savior. We pray, Father, that you will have talked to them. We know you have during this service. Quicken them, drawn them by the Holy Spirit to let them know they need the Savior.
And they need Jesus and his work as their substitute to pay their price. So, Father, right now, with heads bowed and eyes are closed, we ask that you would move upon the hearts of those that don't know Jesus to bring them into your family. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody looking around. If you're here this morning, we'll say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to cross that great gulf between life and death. Only Jesus can do it. Only his work can make the way. I know. If you'd say, I know that I've never made Jesus the Lord of my life, but I'm willing to do so this morning. I'm willing to receive the life that Jesus came to give mankind. The abundant life that will make me a victor in every aspect, a victor over every work of the the devil, the enemy, in my natural existence. I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm tired of going my own way. I now want to serve him. If that's your desire, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. No one looking around. I'm just going to ask you to lift your hand. By lifting your hand, you're just saying, yeah, Pastor Mike, I want you to pray for me. And we will. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Are there others? Pray for me, Pastor Mike. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Once and for all. All right, I have another invitation. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know whether or not you've asked Jesus to come into your heart. Or maybe you did something in the past, but you're not sure if it's the same thing. But you want to have an assurance once and for all. That when you leave this place, you know that when your body expires, you'll spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. If that's your desire, I'm just going to ask you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You lift your hand right where you are. We'll include you in this prayer as well. All right, I have another invitation. Maybe you know that you made Jesus the Lord of your life once before, but you've gone your own way. You've served your own desires. You've lived for yourself instead of living for God. But you're ready to come back. You want to be forgiven of the things you've done wrong. You may be like the prodigal son who went his own way. But his father was looking for him to return every day. Finally, when he came to himself, he returned and his father ran to meet him. That's a picture of God and his desire for you to return into fellowship with him. If you're here this morning and say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to rededicate my life to the Lord. I want to restore fellowship with him. I'm going to ask you, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You just raise your hand right now and we'll include you in this prayer as well. Yes, thank you, ma'am. All right, we had several that lifted their hands to either be saved or restored into fellowship. Have assurance of their salvation. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'm going to ask just those of you that lifted your hand. Or if you didn't, but you know you should have. Just you open your eyes and look up here at me, please. I want to talk to you for just a moment. I said that if you lifted your hand, you were telling us that you want us to pray. We're going to pray. But we're going to do it in a way that we found to be most effective. If I called you up here to the front, you might be conscious of people looking at you and wondering what what are other people thinking and stuff like that. So we don't want to create a burden for you. So here's what we want to do. We're going to ask you to go to a prayer room. It's just a room right off the foyer in the lobby. We're going to send you there with some folks that will pray with you and put some materials in your hands to help you. To know what it is that you're receiving, what the Bible says about who God is to you and who Jesus is. So I'm going to ask you to do this right now. I'm going to ask you to gather your belongings. If you came with someone, you want them to go with you, just tap them on the shoulder or or touch their hand, something. They'll be glad to go with you. It'll just take a moment. Uh, There's a gentleman over here with his hands raised toward the right side of my right side of the auditorium. I'm going to ask you to make your way over to where he is now. He's going to escort you to that prayer room. Would you go with him, please? Hallelujah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Glory to God. Glory to God. Let's all stand in the congregation, if you would, please. Let's pray for this lady that went to the prayer room. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for drawing us by the Holy Ghost. I thank you for the work that you've started in her heart. I thank you, Father, for utterance. 
and an anointing for the prayer room workers. I thank you for the presence of God that will surround them. I thank you, Father, that that dear lady will not leave this place the same way she came in and that this will be a new beginning for her, a new beginning to find out who she is in Christ and what belongs to her because of Jesus' work on the cross. Thank you, Father, for doing a great work in her. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great day. Come back and be with us this evening at 5 o'clock for prayer school and 6 o'clock for healing school if you can. Have a great Mother's Day and you're dismissed.